0: Let's go to the book of James, and let's look at verse 17 again today. I I am quite excited about this section. Being able to uh, share these things from from God's Word, that's always a blessing to me, a joy to do. But uh, there are times when it gets into character studies, and boy, do I love character studies. When we talk about the men and women of this book who um set examples for us. There's so much to learn. And we are right there in James chapter 5 verse 17 and 18 where it says Elijah was a man with a nature like ours and he prayed earnestly that it would not rain and it did not rain on the earth for 3 years and 6 months. Then he prayed again and the sky poured rain. And the earth produced its fruit. We're going to unpack that this morning and look again at the life of Elijah. And why is that in the book of James? All right. Let's start with prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your word. And thank you for the way you express truth to us by illustrating it in the lives of others. Help us to grasp it, understand it, appreciate it, apply it. And be thankful for it. Lord, guide us through our time here this morning. And we thank you so much for it. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. Verse number 16 ended with that statement. The effective, or fervent, if you have that in your text, prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much, avails much. Instantly, without even hardly picking his pen up off the paper... James says, Elijah. Elijah. He starts to illustrate that point with a man named Elijah. Now, there are two things that appear before us concerning Elijah. Right away, I want to make it real simple for you, and it's not hard to notice. Number one, it speaks of his character. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. And number two, his actions. Twice it says the same thing. What did he do in verse 17? He prayed. What did he do in verse 18? He prayed. Those are wonderful phrases. Matter of fact, I was reading just this past week of a, a Puritan writer back in the 1600s writing on this passage. And he was pointing out the Greek phrase, He prayed in prayer. That's coming. I, I'm going to work on that one. All right. I said, wow, that's quite a phrase. But that's the Greek phrase. He prayed in prayer. And so I said, well, that's going to say something. It's going to say a lot. But he prayed. In verse 17, he prayed. In verse 18, he did not cause the drought. He did not make it rain. There's only one who could do that. Right? Jesus said it and he said it very clearly in Matthew 5 verse 45 he says my father or your father as he's talking to the the folks listening that day who is in heaven he causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good and he sends the rain on the righteous and the unrighteous god's in charge of that department rain drought those things we've got a lot to learn about what the significance is of that in the book of james we're going to talk about that too. And in uh, Elijah's life as well. But we have purposefully and carefully brought our examination to this point. And I'm not trying to be tedious in this at all. But I want to underscore what we have learned. Prayer is nothing without faith. Prayer must be accompanied by faith. The prayer of faith. It mentioned that. In verse 15. In its description of what prayer is. Matter of fact. If you really truly want to examine your faith. You must look closely at your prayer life. In the book of James. There are three things that come. From a man who lives by faith. One is he will produce works. Because. We are supposed to be not just hearers of the word, but doers of the word. So, he will, a man of faith, will produce works. Alright? A second thing that James points out is that a man of faith, and I'm using the word man, put woman in there if you like, has self-control. And we've seen a touch of that here, right? Be patient, be patient. Strengthen your heart, don't complain. Yes, self-control. That's all the way through this book. If we were to study all the other chapters and do that for the next ten years, probably, it's all self-control too. How do we live out a life of faith? It is self-control. That's part of it too. And the third thing we've noticed is a man or a woman of faith, living faith, will rely upon God. Faith produces reliance upon God. And how is that manifest? In our prayer life. Because prayer is that thing that I've defined for you, which states simply these five points. One, we know that we are needy. That's why we've gone to prayer, right? We know that we are needy. We know that we must go to another to meet that need because we don't have it. The third thing that goes with that is that we know that God is able to meet that need. That's why we go to Him in prayer. So number four is simply asking Him if He is willing to meet that need. That's why we come like a beggar. Will you help us? Will you help us? And number five is to trust Him with the answer. Right? To trust Him with His answer. And I know for sure, folks, his answer is better than what you thought. Because he always does exceedingly abundantly beyond all that we ask or think. So I would rather have his answer than my answer. I know we all go to him in prayer with our our design, don't we? Lord, this is our need. This is the answer. Do it. And he says, no, 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 no. Here's your need, yes. But you don't understand your need. This is really your need. And this is my answer because my answer is the best for you and it brings me glory. Do you trust me? Do you trust me? That's a big step. But that is what living faith is all about, isn't it? Do we trust Him? That's why prayer is all over the page right here. Do we trust Him? Are we going to let Him give the answers? And are we going to walk according to what he has said? The key to that is dependence. And if there's any man who could set an example for that, it's a man named Elijah. That's why we're studying his name right here. Elijah is the example of us, for us of one who prayed by faith. He prayed by faith. I'm very thankful for his example. Now we don't want to assume that his prayers were merely because uh, they were answered merely because he's a good planograph figure. All right. Now I say that some people say, "Oh, we put these saints on pedestals." Right? I say you've arrived if you become planograph. <laughs> All right. If you become planograph, you're in. And Elijah, he's a planograph guy. All right. Just because he is doesn't mean that God's gonna say it his rubber stamp every prayer that comes down the book if it's got Elijah next to it's going to be answered alright we don't know the rest of Elijah's life we don't know all the other pieces we don't know how many times the Lord said no uh -uh, no way to his prayers we have a record of something the Lord wants us to see we don't have his whole life right. and just because he gets these things answered and as astounding as they are don't step back and say well that makes him different than us. The whole point is, he is like us. Alright? So we're going to try to figure out, how does that work? How does Elijah fit into our picture? Number one, we started on this last week. His character. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. New American Standard Version. Or King James. With like passions. Like passions. In other words, he had feelings. He was a real man, wasn't he? And these Old Testament stories, they're not made up, are they? They're not made by Aesop or somebody like that, are they? They are true. And these people are real. Someday you're going to walk right up to a man named Elijah in heaven. Isn't that going to be fun? That's going to be so cool. You're going to get to talk to Elijah and Elisha and, and Noah and some of these other men and women that we've read about in Scripture He's a real man. He had feelings like we do. He had afflictions. He had affections. He had a constitution like ours. The same passions, the Greek word here, pasco. The same pasco is the experiences of feelings and emotions and suffering. And yes, even pain. That was Elijah. I want to notice two things about this character today. Make it real simple for you as we walk through this. Two things about the character of Elijah here. We go into this biography of who he is and what he experienced and things like that. I want to set before you, first of all, that he is, in this text of James, set before us as an example. That's very important to note. He is an example. Look at back in chapter 5, verse 10. As an example, brethren, of suffering and patience, take the prophets. Now, you told me already Elijah was a prophet last week. So, we're going to go with that. Take Elijah. What is he? An example of suffering and patience. He spoke in the name of the Lord. Was that easy (laughs) <laughs> no, it wasn't. If you study the Old Testament lives of the uh, the prophets, not the prophets. Here's my depiction of how it worked. The prophets were the men you call on 911 when there's trouble. <laughs> they were the guys who came when there was issues that were hard. They were the they were the folks that were like lifesavers. They were the guards at the school. They jumped in when somebody was in trouble. When there was an issue of sin. When people were walking away from the Lord, when they had terrible, terrible wickedness in high places, the Lord tapped the shoulder of a prophet and said, now go talk to him. It was not an easy job. They were usually put into the deep end of the pool right away. That's where a prophet is found more times than not. I like to think of them in baseball terms. They're your closer. Right? You baseball people know what that's all about. If you've got a bad closer, you're in trouble. Your season just goes down the tank because he can't finish the game for you in the time of need. Well, these guys were sent in at the toughest time of the game. That's the prophet. Elijah was a prophet. Not an easy job. We're going to see some of his story as we go through here. But he spoke in the name of the Lord, and he's an example, like the other prophets, of suffering and patience that 's that same thing that you have that James is writing about that like passion is that what you share in common with him emotions, feelings, suffering, pains he knew it the call to be patient he knew it too. Now, what is an example for it 's simple, and even the Greek word points it out for this it is an example is set. So that you may trace it out. Alright? Let me show you how that works. It's real simple. It's not just simply an example you set up on the wall as a picture and say, Oh, that's what I'd like to be. But the the Greek word actually means to copy that picture. To be like what you see. Alright? So, a couple of concepts I have in my mind, which come very quickly to me, is one when I used to work years and years ago to get through school working at a pizza place, we had in the back room where we made the pizzas a picture of the perfect pizza. It was up there on the wall. And our job was to copy that with every pizzas we made. So you made sure it looked like that. So while you're learning, you're always looking up at the picture to make sure you have the right number of pepperonis and they're in the right place, and all those kind of things. It was a picture to copy. Now, sometimes an artist to duplicate a picture would set a copy sheet or whatever that paper is called over it, and it's real thin, and you can see through it. And you, you follow along the edges, and you can sketch out that same picture on there. And when you hold up your piece of paper, what's it supposed to look like? The one you just copied. That's the word we're looking at here in James' writing. He says, I want that image to be impressed on you so that you look like that. Right? Most people say, Well, I don't want to look like Elijah. I had his description given to me. Rough kind of guy. Rough kind of he probably ate grasshoppers like John the Baptist did. Which might not be a bad idea right now. They're getting abundant, right? You say, No, well, what's his character? We're to be like that. We're to copy that. That's the word in front of us. We're to, he set as an exhibit for imitation. He is a pattern to be copied. So, we will be wise if we trace out his character and his actions, and if we will appropriately copy that pattern to our lives. Because our lives are to be characteristic of living faith. And guess what his was? It was an example of living faith. Alright? That's why we're going into Elijah. That's the first thing I wanted to point out, is that he is an example. And let's, let's not just pass by that and say, okay, that's pretty neat. But let's take it seriously. If he's an example, there is a call for us to copy it. Alright? There's our application to start with. We've got to learn from him so we can know what to do. And secondly, secondly is this. If he is a pattern for us to copy, what are we to be for somebody else? The exact same thing. Do you know that? This is not just so that we could learn it and say apply it to ourselves and then go on happy lives. We are meant to be examples, aren't we? We're supposed to exhibit before other believers what it means to live by faith. And here it gets rather personal and maybe uncomfortable. But if you measure yourself up to a man like like Elijah, and you say, okay, that's what I'm supposed to be like in my character, and I'm lacking that, let me ask you, then what kind of example are you setting for somebody else? If we don't take this seriously, somebody else who's learning from us is not going to have the true image, are they? We have to be careful that we follow through because it's not just about us is it it's about every single person who sees us and do you think you're being watched oh yes you are your grandkids are watching you your neighbors are watching you your coworkers are watching you your children are watching you your siblings are watching you they're all trying to say what is that thing that you are and is it worth topping in my life That's a very serious thing to consider. I don't know that Elijah, sitting back there in his day, said, I'm going to be an example someday. And I don't think us today would sit here and say, who or what we're going to be an example of to somebody else. But you are one, because somebody's learning from you right now. What kind of an example are you setting for them? It gets personal. That's why I say, let's not go carelessly through this process. If we're going to learn this well, we're going to have to be able to apply it and live it, so that somebody else can copy it too. Because they may never read the life of Elijah, but they're reading your life right now. Right? Okay. Those are important principles we have to set before us. Because Elijah's example does include the concepts of suffering And patience. That's woven into this chapter all the way through anyway. Suffering and patience. He sets an example to us of what does it mean to be righteous. Verse 16 says the effective fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. So he's meant to be an example of that too. He is meant to show us what fervency is in prayer. The fervent prayer. Verse 16. He's supposed to be a picture to us of endurance. Back up in verse number 11. As an example, brethren, of the patience, or the suffering and patience, Uh, verse 10 says, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord, recount those blessed who endured. He's talking about those who endured. And he's supposed to be our example of that too. I would add something else that is not, Prominent in this text, but it fits the context. Because, as you know, when we got around verse 15 and 16 and so, we started to talk about those other people, right? Those other people in our fellowship, other people in our Christian walk who are struggling. And we're to be praying for them. You know, they're to come to the elders and we're to pray for them. And we're supposed to be praying for others. We have others written all over the verses here as we get to the end. And you say, well... What's that got to do with Elijah? I'm going to suggest something here, and I think it makes sense. But I'm going to suggest that he had a great concern about others. Especially when it came to those who were weak, those who were uh, sickly in the faith, I would say, who were consumed by sin. If he had a nature like ours, and that's what ours is supposed to be like, if there's emotion, if there's suffering, if there's pain woven into the context, we know what it's like. Perhaps in, in these pictures, to be cheated, to be treated poorly, uh, various things like that. I lost a page somewhere. Where I went? Okay. Um, but here, he's been through an awful lot. Who is he ministering to in his day? Does he does he deal with any people at all in his day? He spends time with a widow. He does all these incredible. We're going to read all these stories in just a few minutes. But look at his life. It's not that he goes and finds a totem pole or a telephone pole or a high tree and he sits on top of it and he thinks godly thoughts all day long. He's down among people, people who are, and some of them very sinful. And he's called to minister to these people and to share the word of God with these people. And it's not easy places to go at times. And I'm going, to con- can, uh, I'm, going to, I'm going to suggest to you, especially when we get to verse 19 and 20, there's a need for us to go to the places that are tough too. People who are in sin and they're in trouble. And we're called to go there too. Elijah is going to set an example of a man who went to where it was tough. And it had to do with people. And it had to do with people in sin. Difficult situations. What it means to be patient. What it means to strengthen your heart. What it means not to complain. What it means when people are robbed of their strength. They're toiling and toiling and toiling. And they're so weak and emotionally spent. And physically spent that they cannot do the next thing. And you need to step in there and help them out. They make bad choices because they're tired. You need to help them out. They say the wrong things. You need to help them out. Sometimes you think, "Wow, if I'm helping everybody else out, there's nobody like me. I'm alone in this world, carrying everybody's burdens. Do you think that ever crossed Elijah's mind? Oh, yes, it did. And he even had a good conversation with God about it. I'm the only one left, he said. I'm the only one left. Where was his brothers and sisters, so to speak, of the prophets? Where were they? They were hiding in a cave. Wait till we read the story. They were hiding in a cave. He says, well, I'm the only one left. Let's talk about his life. You ready? This is good. 1 Kings chapter 17. Way back there. Way back there. 1 Kings chapter 17. Find 1st and 2nd Samuel, you're not quite there. If you find 1st 2nd Chronicles, you've gone too far. All right, King sits right between them. And 1st Kings is where you want to be. Chapter number 17. Now, when we come to the life of Elijah, it starts chapter 17, verse 1. Now Elijah the Tishbite, who was of the settlers of Gilead, Said to Ahab, there's your entire introduction to Elijah. It was a Tishbite. What's that? He was from a place called Tish or Tishbi or something like that. It was a Tishbite. Where's that on a map? Who knows? You start looking for it. I think it was somewhere over the, either in the northern part of the kingdom or somewhere across or into the land of Gilead. It's not a big town, is it? It doesn't sound like it is. Who's his parents? We have no idea. Doesn't say. He's unique. Scripture would describe him in different ways. He's very dramatic. He's rugged in appearance in his dress. They they said he was an awful lot like John the Baptist. And we got a good depiction of him in the New Testament. But his introduction to us is he pops on the scene. He's just there one day when King Ahab needed somebody to come and talk to him. This is really quite interesting. Just walks into the presence of an idolatrous king named Ahab to announce God's message to him. I want to point out something here in chapter 17, verse 1. Because the whole story of Elijah as to his Ministry and the events the Lord wanted us to see is between 1st Kings 17 and 2nd Kings chapter 2. All right, Just a handful of chapters that point out very dramatic things that happened in his life. But when we start the story in verse number 1, he is a settler of Gilead. You say, well, okay, what's that? Picture this, if you will. The Jordan River runs right down from Sea of Galilee down to the Dead Sea. You can see that easily on a map. Jordan River. On the west side is the territory we generally call Israel. On the east side, they did have land there too, by the way, when they came with Moses into there. And Reuben and Gad and half the tribe of Manasseh settled on the east side of the Jordan River. There was a region there. On the east side of the Sea of Galilee and the east side of the Jordan River called Gilead. Alright? It technically belonged to Israel, but over the course of the Old Testament, they started to lose it day by day. Their territory was shrinking over and over and over again because, well, they weren't faithful to the Lord and the enemies. There were a lot of enemies out there and they kept pushing their way closer to the river. And so... We don't read a lot about what's going on on the eastern side of the river because most of the Old Testament stories are on the western side. And that's where most of the you know cities sort of we're familiar with are all there. But here's what's happening. By the time Elijah comes on the scene, 60 years have happened since the nation split in two. The northern kingdom, called Israel, have their own king. The southern kingdom called Judah has their own king. And they split just after the death of Solomon. That was all prophetic. That's what God designed. And yet, still, that was the issue that happened. The northern kingdom split from the southern kingdom. And if you were an occupant of the northern kingdom, you witnessed a whole series of very wicked kings. You didn't get a reprieve. As a matter of fact, each one tried to outdo the last one on how wicked can I be. It's almost like there's a contest. Alright? And so they, they went on wicked after wicked after wicked. The very first northern king introduced idolatry right away. He had to have idols in there because he didn't want people running down to Jerusalem. That was in the southern kingdom. He didn't want them going down there for worship. So he set up his own places for worship up in the northern tribes. The first king was Jeroboam. He was stricken with a plague by God and died. Not a happy ending. Second king was Nadab. Nadab was assassinated. Third king was Basha. Basha was an interesting character. Uh, He fought against the godly king Asa to the south and built a wall so that you couldn't bring supplies through. You couldn't even bring uh, merchandise through. He cut off the trade routes to Jerusalem. That was Basha. Elah, his, the one who followed him, was assassinated. Zimri, king number five, committed suicide. King number six was Omri. Omri was horrific as a man. Sinful as can be. And one of his Mark's to claim was that he took his son Ahab and had him marry to Jezebel. Jezebel was a Phoenician princess and the key to Baal worship in the Old Testament. And that's Omri's claim to fame that he married off his son to this lady. Ahab is the guy you're reading about right now. Ahab the king was on the throne when Elijah was called by God to be a prophet. Elijah was settling in Gilead. I'm going to guess by the phrase settling, it's actually in the Hebrew it means a temporary resident. He probably got out of the northern kingdom when he saw Ahab coming on the throne. He says, I'm not going to stay there. They're going to Baal worship. I don't want to be a part of that. He moves. He settled in Gilead. As far away as he could probably from that kingdom. He didn't want to be a part of it. There's sometimes when you see the events going on in a country, you say, why would anyone want to live there? And I'm thinking, that's Elijah's thinking. I don't want to live there. That's pretty bad stuff they're doing there. So he moved. He's found to be a righteous man. A man willing to follow the instructions of the Lord. And that couldn't have been easy in a day when Ahab is on the throne and his wife is Jezebel. Gilead was safe. Samaria was a mess. Where would you rather live? (laughs) I'm moving, right? Let's go where it's safe. So, Elijah's first appearance is in this biblical account. He marches into the presence of King Ahab, and he announces a drought. Right away, look at the words. As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives, verse 1 says, before whom I stand, surely there will be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. Period. He walks back out. That's his statement to the king. Notice what the king needed to know. The king needed to know, what is this all about? As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives, is the main point. That's his main point before the king named Ahab. The entire reason for the prophecy was that Ahab did not recognize the Lord. Ahab didn't want to recognize the Lord. He was busy with Baal worship stuff. And introducing all kinds of evils to the land. Matter of fact, this is his testimony. You ready for this? 1 Kings 16 verse 30. Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord more than all who were before him. Sin was a trivial thing to him. Verse 33 says in chapter 16, Ahab did more to provoke the Lord God of Israel than all the kings of Israel who were before him. This guy made it to the Guinness Book of Records for evil. And here, he didn't want to recognize the Lord. He didn't want to acknowledge him. He didn't, certainly didn't want to obey him. Wanted nothing to do with him. And Elijah walks in and says, he's living. And as he lives, I declare to you this. He starts with the main point. The God of Israel does live. You provoked him. He does live. I don't know what it was like for Elijah to have been called by the Lord that day. And for the Lord to say, I'm sending you to Ahab. (laughs) I don't know what that was like. I don't know if he struggled with that. I, I'm trying to put my, my feelings into a little bit, and that's all speculative, you know. I just can't imagine. Go to the worst person on this planet and talk to them about me. Woo! That's tough stuff. He says, go. We don't have that conversation. We can put all these emotions and thoughts into it because, after all, he was a man of the same passions as you and me. And maybe he was a little bit fearful. Maybe he felt a little weak on this point. Or maybe we ought to just be more like him, willing to go, whether we liked it or not. Simply because the Lord called us to do it. Maybe the concern, because this man was living in sin, and he was setting an example for all the people, because where the king went, the people went. And maybe Elijah's thinking, you're ruining the entire nation. And his concern for sin drove him to say, I'm going to go, Lord, because something needs to be said that might save a soul. Could you imagine this? Just imagination, because it's not in the text. If he walks into the presence of Ahab and he says, as the Lord God of Israel lives today, there will be a drought on this land until I say so. And Ahab says, oh, I'm sorry, I need to repent right now. Wouldn't that be great? We don't have that. But there are so many things we don't know when we go into things like this. We find it easier to give up on somebody when they're sinful. Don't we? We write them off. We say, no, nah, can't do that. Why go to a guy like Ahab? He's gone. I mean, he's so sinful. Who's going to want to see him? You know, Who's going to want to talk to him? Why talk to him? He's gone. Forget it. A.W. Pink made a simple comment. He was writing to believers, but I think we could find a principle here. The closer the Christian lives to God, the more he will mourn over all that dishonors him. Think about that. When's the last time you mourned over somebody else's sin? Mourned over the sins of our country. Mourned over the sins of this world. Mourned over the leaders who are showing themselves to be wicked at times. When's the last time we mourned over anybody who's sinful? He said here in this simple phrase, the closer the Christian lives to God, the more he will mourn over all that dishonors him. And I don't know what was in Elijah's heart. When God said, go... But if Elijah was anything like Lot, do you know the story of Lot? Back in Second Peter chapter 2, verse 7 and 8, it says that Lot was oppressed by the sensual conduct of unprincipled men. It also said that Lot felt his righteous soul tormented day after day by their lawless deeds. I think that the closer we do get to the Lord and the more we desire to live for Him, we're going to see the difference between what is right and what is wrong. And what is wrong ought to trouble your soul. Not because you're in it, but because there are people in it. People with eternal lives. Do we care? Do we care? Enough to say something? Enough to go? Elijah stepped into a very hard place He went to a man named Ahab, the wickedest man on the planet at the time, I think. He says to him in chapter 17, verse 1, There will be no rain except by my words. As we know in chapter 5 of James, verse 17, it would last for three and a half years. Folks, we live in a culture, in an area, and an economy where we need rain. (laughs) When we miss it for two weeks, we start to say something, don't we? Kind of dry out there. Imagine three and a half years. How devastating would that be? Three and a half years. We'll talk more about that later. But it wasn't Elijah who withheld the rain. It was the Lord who withheld the rain. Most of Elijah's story happens during this drought. And I want to make a simple point for you. All right? There was great suffering on the land because of this drought. Three and a half years of suffering. Elijah was not immune to the suffering. He didn't have a little oasis set up for him that was special and unique in some way. He he would suffer as well from that drought and know what it meant to be among people who did. In chapter number 17, right after he said this, the Lord said, Hey, I want you to go over by a brook. Cherith. You say it in verse number three. I want you to stay there. You can drink from that brook, and, and I'm going to send my ravens every day to feed you. Now, would you like that? Fed by birds every single day. I wonder what they brought in. They, they would bring him food every day. Would that? Would you call that miraculous? Yes, it is. Would you be excited if somebody was bringing you food like that every day? Maybe. Maybe not. So, I don't know about that. He would drink from a brook. But you know what happened? At the end of verse number 7, it happened that after a while, the brook dried up because there was no rain in Israel. Where was he at the time? He was still sitting by that brook. He wasn't told to leave. God didn't say, get up. The brook's about to dry up. He stayed there until the brook was dried up. He didn't move until the Lord told him to. And he came to them. The Lord came to him right after that and said, Now I want you to get up. I want you to go to Zarephath. There's a widow there. I want you to go and see her. Zarephath, that's in Sidon. Sidon's in Phoenicia. Phoenicia is the land of Jezebel. Sound like a happy place to you? That was the heart and soul of Baal worship. It came from that region. God says, "All right, I want you to go now where that all starts. I want you to go to Zarephath. I want you to go where there's a widow there. Because I have for her to provide for you. And a remarkable story takes place here. He goes and he stays with this lady. She uses up all her flour and oil in one meal. And Elijah talks... Gets information from the Lord and says, oh, she, he's going to keep providing for you. And for day after day after day, there was always enough oil and flour for the next meal. And the Lord kept multiplying it, multiplying it, multiplying it, as Elijah stayed with her. And you say, wow, that's a great miracle too. That's during a drought. There was nobody else really getting much out of the ground because it was a drought. The Lord was miraculously providing for him. You say, okay, you've got a pretty easy situation here, Elijah. Until you read into verse, uh, let's see. How far down? Verse 17. Now it came about after these things that the son of the woman, the mistress of the house, became sick. And his sickness was so severe that there was no breath left in him. What did he do? He died. Her son died. Elijah is met by this lady. She comes up to him in verse 18 and says, What do I have to do with you, O man of God? You have come here to bring my iniquity to remembrance and to put my son to death? Boy, is that a happy story right there. He suddenly feels the wrath of this woman because her son has just died and, and she blamed him for it. He says, Give me your son. Verse 19. He took him from her. Carried her up carried him up to the upper room where he was living, laid him on his own bed. He called out to the Lord and said, Oh, Lord, my God, have you also brought calamity to this widow with whom I am staying by causing her son to die? Look at this question. Why, Lord? What a bad timing for this thing. I'm here to help this lady, right? You took her son's life. Why? He stretched himself out upon the child three times. He called to the Lord and said, Oh Lord God, I pray you, let this child's life return to him. The Lord heard the voice of Elijah and the life of the child returned to him and he revived. Elijah brings the child down. Quite relieved. Says here, your son's alive. Amazing, wouldn't you say? Wow, what a great miracle! Then look at the rest of the phrase. Verse 24. Verse 24. Then the woman said to Elijah, Now I know that you are a man of God and that the word of the Lord in your mouth is truth. He had been living with her this whole time. Miracle after miracle after miracle. And she still withheld her trust. She withheld her trust. You say, well, this prayer here in verse 20, wouldn't that be better in the book of James? We're talking about prayer. Wouldn't it be great? He prayed for this child to be alive, and he did. You say, Well, that would be a great, remarkable answer to prayer. But how many of us have something in common with that one? When's the last time you brought somebody back to life? It's not usually in the repertoire, is it? It's usually not something we do. You're saying, well, what is it that we usually encounter? like, How to live godly in an ungodly world. That's one thing. To see sin all around you. To see brothers and sisters struggling in this world. We see them growing weak. We see them growing helpless. And you pray for them that they would be strong in the Lord. I don't know how Elijah was praying for this widow this whole time. Those are different kinds of life and death struggles. Without prayer, where would we be in all that? Elijah suffered the effects of drought as well. He knew what it was like to live in a tough place. He knew that he needed to live by faith in a sinful world, and he was in the middle of it. He had those same passions, same weaknesses, same pains, as we come to know. But here's something we learned, something very important here, and I'm going to sum it up because our time's up. When the Lord gives a message... Elijah spoke it. Think of that. Something we could copy. Even to the worst of the lots of people, he spoke it. When the Lord said, Go, notice verse 5 he went. He went, and he did according to the word of the Lord. He stayed. When the Lord said to stay, he stayed, even though the supply of water ran out. He stayed, because he trusted the Lord. When the Lord said in verse 9, arise, he got up. When he said, go to that terrible place, he went. When he stayed with a a widow, where he knew it would be a time of struggle, just to survive, to eat one meal, he stayed there. He lived in a land of idolatry. He He knew that idolatry had plagued all of his country. So he arose and he went. And he stayed. And while he was there, her son died. Enter into the story for a minute. Just for a minute. When you get down toward the end of verse number 24 there. Did Elijah know how much he had invested into that moment? When she finally responded. He probably didn't. To get the woman to recognize who God is, God took her and Elijah and her son through a famine. Through daily miracles, through sickness, and even through death. God took them down a very rough road. And eventually the son is brought back to life. And why did God do all that? To change her heart. To change her heart. At any moment, Elijah, like you and me, would have said, why, Lord? (laughs) Why? On top of everything else, why did you end this boy's life? Was it worth it? What if the boy had never revived and he kept praying? What if the woman never responded? What if Elijah had never lived by faith? I want to ask you something simple. Do we need the Lord's miracles to prove that the Lord lives? No, we don't. So here's my question, or, or simply say it this way. Do you put your faith in the things the Lord does, or do you put your faith in the Lord who does them? There's a difference. A lot of people, like this lady, it had to take things to happen before she responded by faith. Elijah responded by faith before the things happened. You see the difference? Is the lady our example? No, it's Elijah. Elijah is our example of one who trusted and obeyed the Lord without the result being known. Could he ask Why? Oh, yes. (laughs) Did he go through the drought? Oh, yes. Did he know suffering? Uh Uh-huh. Did he know anguish? Oh, I'm sure of it. He went through all those things too. And yet, he walked faithfully in the instructions of his Lord. I said that before you, because I'm going to leave you in a drought for two weeks. All right? I'm not going to verse 18 yet. We're going to leave it right there and leave that example of Elijah right before us. A man in the midst of the drought, still trusting the Lord. That's for us to copy. That's for us to copy. Trace it out in your life and live it because somebody else is watching you right now. They're watching you right now. How are you living by faith? That's our examination. All right? Heavenly Father, there's much for us to learn here. And I thank you for the example set before us. Teach us, we pray, Lord, because only you can make these things applicable in an eternal way. In a way that changes us forever. And I pray that you do that. But we need this lesson, and we need to live it today. Thank you, Lord, for it. And we pray your blessing on it. In Jesus' name, amen.